welcome to The Dirt. I am your host, Brian Powell. North Carolina, are you happy? Are you healthy? Is the air you're breathing clean? How is your commute going? How is everything going these days? The answers might be in a report issued by the North Carolina Conservation Network. The 151-page report is called the 2019 State of the Environment. And in studio to tell us more about it is Grady McCauley, the Policy Director at North Carolina Conservation Network. Welcome back to the show, Grady. Good morning. Thanks for having me. So, what is the state of the environment? So, there are a lot of environmental issues in the news. We wanted to take a step back from the flow and ask, how is North Carolina doing as a whole? And to do that, we wanted to look at not just the quality of our air and water and how we're managing energy and waste, but also what it means for our economy, for our social fabric, and for public health. And so that's what the report does. Um, and, and also how we build and develop on the landscape. And just for listeners who are unfamiliar, the North Carolina Conservation Network is an underwriter of this show. Can you explain a little bit about what the organization is? Yes, it's a statewide environmental advocacy organization, and we're really lucky to work in partnership with a host of other organizations, advocates, and concerned citizens across the state. So the report spends um, a significant amount of time talking about looking at North Carolina's vulnerability to climate change, particularly with regard to historic and intensifying storms like Hurricane Florence and Matthew can you tell me a little bit from the what the report is saying about what some of those vulnerabilities are? That's right. So in the report, we're looking at different kinds of uh, vulnerabilities to the effects of climate change. But in the last couple of years, we've had major storms, Hurricane Matthew, Hurricane Florence, uh, and, and flooding has been top of mind. So in the report, we're looking at the damages from floods, from storm surge. We're also uh, looking at a data source from the... Um, New York University Furman Center in 2017 that was looking at the n- percentage of houses in the floodplain in North Carolina, in the 500-year floodplain, because these storms have flooded the 500-year floodplain. They estimated that over 6% of the houses in the state are in the 500-year floodplain. And in coastal counties, that goes up over 25% for some counties. Wow. So to talk more about this, the vulnerabilities and what we might be able to uh, do about it, We have in studio Dr. Julie Demeester, North Carolina Director of Water for the Nature Conservancy. Hello. Good morning. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you for being here. So I guess before we get started into some of the the management uh, of the floodplain issues, first we had Matthew, we had Florence, we've had these 500-year storms coming so much more frequently than the name 500-year storm might uh, indicate. How much, uh, we're talking about Florence, how much water are we talking about? Sure. I'm glad you talked about some of these things because it can be very confusing when you talk about a 500-year storm and you pause and look at North Carolina. Go back just 20 years, not even the last two or three years. We had Floyd in 1999 that decimated our state and dumped massive amounts of water and broke records. And then even in the last few years, we've had Florence, Matthew, Michael. We've had these massive storms go through. And so we talk about this 500-year storm event, and we're experiencing it multiple times in 20 years, and that's very confusing to someone that isn't in the depths of water research. So I definitely am going to talk about water and what that means, but let's just pause and think about 
what is a 500-year storm? It's a probability of a big event happening. And what it's based on is data that we have recorded. And if you think back 500 years ago in our country, America was not a country yet. Right? So we don't have 500 years of rainfall data. And what we're doing is trying to look at the trends that have happened since we've been recording water data and project out what we think will happen with large events and the probabilities that those large events would happen. Now, what in reality is happening is that our weather patterns are shifting in North Carolina, and we're having more extreme events on both ends. So I talked about multiple hurricanes. We're also having more just heavy rain events happen in our state. And in the interlude, we're having droughts. So our state is having to manage water in a whole new way, um, and it makes us have to think, what are the solutions to that so that we can have healthy, happy people as well as healthy water for us to drink? And, it, and it's complicated. So I will go back to your first question, which wasn't anything about that. <laughs> well, no, but that's, re- that's really helpful because I, I, people see that term in the news all the time. And they see these storms happening more and more frequently. And it's like, so is the were the calculations wrong in the first place? We didn't have enough data and we were just not calculating it right? Or have we just not adjusted to how much climate change is impacting the weather now as to before? Yeah. It sounds like it's maybe a combination it's of the both. two. And when you look at all of the research on changing weather, precipitation is one of the hardest things to predict because it has so many localized effects. So you, there's general trends on temperature, and then we can estimate how much evaporation we think will happen because of temperature. But when you look at individual precipitation events, I mean, look at even Florence itself. For a long time, they predicted that storm was going to hit Halifax, basically, right? And it was going to go in through Nags Head, and then it went through Wilmington. And we learned that in a matter of days before it happened. And so it makes it hard when you say, I'm trying to predict precipitation patterns at a local level when I have these coarse data that's across a bigger scale. Um, So it it is confusing. It's hard. We've advanced a long way in the science, and it's getting better and better. But I think everyone will tell you that this is complicated. And as our weather patterns are changing and our climate's changing, it is only getting more confusing. Um, But so let's go back to talking about that. Um, We are having changing weather, and I think we in North Carolina need to prepare for more of those changing weather events in the future. And while this year has been, we've been literally underwater, we know in in 2007, 2002, we were in drought. And if you even think about the eastern part of the state, um, we have a lot of sand in our soils there, which means when the water hits that soil, it drains relatively quickly. I say relatively. So that means that if you go two weeks without a rain event, you can be in a drought in our state. So you're having to prepare between droughts and large floods in our state, and that's complicated for everyone on the landscape. So let me give you some overview of Florence because it'll help bring home the massive amount of water that we felt in this state. So um, Hurricane Florence moved at about two to three miles per hour, which means that you could walk faster than this storm. Yeah. It dumped up to 35 or actually more than 35 inches of rain in certain parts of our state. So Elizabethtown got over 35 inches of rain. That's at least where I've seen the highest record of rain in our state from this storm. But you think of towns like Swansboro got 34 inches and Emerald Isle got 20, over 23 inches. And if you're Emerald Isle, if you're Elizabethtown, you're a little bit more inland. So you don't necessarily have the ocean hammering down your door. But if you are Emerald Isle, not only do you have the rainfall, but you also have the, the storm surge from the ocean coming in, which was 9 to 13 feet. Wow. So we experienced coastal flooding in a tremendous way, but we also experienced inland flooding 
in a huge way. Uh, so they estimated across our state that 8 trillion gallons of water fell. And I like to try and put that in concept because once you start talking numbers that high. Yeah, I was going to say, I, I can't even imagine that that number. I mean, 35 inches. OK, I get it. That's staggering. But that you start getting into trillions. Yes. What, what does that look so, like? So I, I have this little fun fact that I found on my favorite Google, right? Um, if you had one million in seconds, that would equate to 12 days. One billion in seconds would equate to 31 years. And one trillion in seconds would equate to 31,688 years. So we're saying we got eight trillion gallons of water. Just to try and put that in perspective, it was a lot. And I have a few stats on rivers if you would want to hear some nerdy science stats so you can I love yeah. nerdy yeah science okay stats walk around your cocktail yeah. party and um and say things okay <laughs> so i focus a lot on the cape fear river and the cape fear river basin starts in greensboro and empties in wilmington and this river basin was hit hard in both matthew and florence and michael um so when we looked at some of the gauges that are in the river um there's a gauge right near where wilmington has its drinking water and the river usually runs at about 1,260 cubic feet per second at this, the time of year when Florence hit. The gauges had trouble recording the amount of water that went over them, but they were recording over 76,700 oh, wow. cubic feet per second. And then you think of Fayetteville's just upstream of the, that area that I'm telling you. Fayetteville floods when the river hits 35 feet. The, the river actually crested over 61 feet. So we're saying a lot of water was coming down this area. Well, I'm sorry. We are going to have to wrap this up. Uh, we've got a fire alarm, as folks can probably hear. So we're going to have to step outside of the studio, and hopefully we'll be right back. Okay, we are back in the studio after that mini emergency. Everyone is safe. The building is safe. Things are good. Yeah, we're joking um, on our break that I tend to set off alarms, not myself, but my presence. For instance, in my wedding ceremony, the fire alarm also went off. <laughs> so. And we leaned heavily on your experience in these matters as we were outside of the building. So <laughs> we are here again talking with Dr. Julie Demeester from the Nature Conservancy and Grady McCauley, Policy Director of North Carolina Conservation Network. This is The Dirt on WNCU-FM. We got a lot of fun facts about how much water... Uh, the storms, Hurricane Florence and Matthew and, and others have uh, kind of thrown at North Carolina. I want to talk a little bit now about we're, we're experiencing these storms and these this flooding at historic levels. Obviously, it's causing uh, it's deadly. It's causing a lot of property damage and other problems. And I think we expect these storms to continue intensifying regardless of what is done to curb climate change. So what can we do to protect our communities um, in the floodplain from these kinds of impacts? Sure. So this is a complicated question, but what encourages me is that we have so many wonderful, smart people in North Carolina trying to think about it. So I'm going to go through parts of what needs to be done, saying that the part I'm talking about is a piece of a puzzle of a concept we called resiliency. Um, and resiliency just means that you have a set of capacities to handle or prevent a system um, that it can respond to the threats that it's exposed to and continue to be healthy and stable after those threats have abated. 
Um, and then when you talk about these big storms and the interludes of droughts, it can be really hard to be resilient on both ends of that spectrum. And so when you look at um, literature talking about it, there's, there's different concepts out there from planning about how, where do we do smart development, there's adapting, how can we adapt if water's going to be in certain places, um, and then there's trying to think about accommodating. And in some ways with these big storms, we're going to have to learn how to accommodate for large amounts of water. And working at the Nature Conservancy, one of our focuses is what we call nature-based solutions, and my favorite is floodplains and wetlands. So I'm a wetland geek. <laughs> I, I enjoy swamps. I like, I like those things. And the funny thing is, when you talk about wetlands, most people, first of all, don't actually know what a wetland is. And that's okay. I didn't either when I went to grad school. That's a secret. I have a PhD in wetlands now. So um, wetlands are really, if you look at, so when we're talking about where these big storms are hitting, you have rivers. And then along the banks, rivers are actually supposed to flood. A river system is designed to flood, and it is healthy to flood. What's happened is that we've had human development in very vulnerable locations. And so when flooding happens, especially on the magnitude of Florence, we're damaging, we, we even have less of, loss of life right? We're damaging property. We have loss of life. And we're changing the way the system, the river and its functioning floodplain work together. So the floodplain is the area right next to a river or stream. Um, it can be called a riparian area. It can be called a wetland. Um, you will hear the term buffer used, which is the distance that you want to have from your stream to development. And you'll hear these terms used interchangeably. And what we like to think about at the Nature Conservancy is how can we use that floodplain area to absorb water um, and filter nutrients and help downstream communities. So the beautiful part of these wetlands, so people think a swamp thing and I'm bogged down and they have all these negative connotations. <laughs> I'm going to give you some, some beautiful aspects to them. That flooding that they experience goes between wetting and drying. And that wetting and drying um, not only is absorbing floodwaters that come over, but also there's microbes in the soil of those wetlands that are processing pollution. And so having healthy functioning floodplains is helping us with both flooding and water quality. And interestingly, they also help during droughts because when you go into a drought, that floodplain area has um, water movement through the soil that goes back into the river. So you're keeping some amount of what we call base flow in the river by having those floodplains. So we're always thinking about at the Nature Conservancy, how can we keep, increase the absorption capacity of those areas? How can we make sure they're in the right place? And so what we've actually done recently um, with a postdoc who's very talented, um, we have been mapping out where flooding has been happening with remote sensing. So remote sensing meaning satellites. Interesting. Yeah, and so, you know, in the past, we've had to rely on elevation and soil type to get estimates of what we think might flood. And it's hard for emergency responders to go out during a flood and really see where all the water went. And so what you can do afterwards is go and look at where you see water marks on houses and things to get an example of where you think the water went. But now we have satellites flying over Earth all the time, right? So we can use these new images that come out to look at where the water's going. So at the Nature Conservancy, we're looking at multiple storms right now. 
we're looking at these hurricanes, but we're also looking at smaller storm events to see what is flooding continuously. What is in that environment? So if we know there's lots of houses in the environment, we might turn to a federal program that does housing buyouts. Or if we know that there's actually what we're looking for is opportunities where we can improve these floodplain areas to absorb more water. And there's even some areas that might not be in a forested setting. They might be in a field type setting where we could actually go in and convert that area to an to something that functions properly like a wetland that protects a downstream community. So we are actually looking at where towns are, where population centers are, and what's upstream of those to put some of these measures in. Um, and it, it's really exciting. We're also working with the U.S. Geological Survey on modeling out if we did these practices on the landscape, what does that actually mean for a town? We're using computer models to do that. So we're really trying to get at the question of how do we make our, how do we make everyone more resilient? Right. That's really interesting because policymakers, they now they no longer have an excuse of, well, we don't know anything or we need some more studies or, or something along those lines. There's such a wealth of information coming from organizations like yours that policymakers and decision makers can use to protect people before the next huge storm comes around. I'm curious, uh, Grady, do you have any uh is there anything else in the report that that maybe talks about uh, what's most important or what's most important for policymakers to to do as we are um, going forward into the future? Well, so these floodplain reconnection strategies are really important. Julie also mentioned um, the on the other end of the spectrum uh, what happens when we have a drought, and North Carolina is is also vulnerable there. We are first in the nation for the acreage of land in what's called the wildland urban interface, where you've got houses and natural areas, not, not parks, but like forests, just um, and, and brushland uh, interspersed. And we're fifth in the nation for the number of people living in that. So that's sort of the other end of the spectrum is what do we do when we get severe droughts? How do we manage the fire risk? And we've got about one minute left the coast. Um, yeah. What's going on there? Well, so, you know, at the Nature Conservancy, the coast, we're also thinking about coastal resilience, floodplain resilience. I'll add in, we we're trying to think about markets and how do you, um, the question you got at with Grady, I want to just quickly and say, it's not just a simple matter of knowing where the flooding's happening. There's a social dynamic to all of this. You can't go in and tell a community they have to move. You have to ask the community, what do they need and how do we help you get there? Um, and so that gets to what Grady's talking about. We have people living in these environments and they might have a connection to this place or they might want to stay united as a community if they move somewhere. So we're always thinking about that, including on the coast. And one of the tools we have on the coast is actually looking at the National Flood Insurance Program. Um, and we, our coastal staff have developed this tool where they go in and work with communities like Curitac and Manio, um, where they... They went in and they looked at if you protect green space, can you reduce your national flood insurance premiums? Um, and we're trying to work with the communities to, to get their data and say, what do you need? But hey, look, you can also have a benefit to your citizens. And I think that gets to the heart of a lot of it, is that these storms are expensive, $17 billion price tag on Florence, and that we have to think of creative solutions, which will include economists thinking about markets. Do we pay people to use their land to flood? Do we? How do we get people out of the wrong places? How do we you know, think about ordinances and planning and future development, mm. and we have to do all of this together. But the good news is we have lots of talented minds in the state to get it done. Excellent. Okay, it's time to head to a break. This is The Dirt on WNCU-FM, and we are talking about a new report called The State of the Environment and What It Means for Our State. 
If you're enjoying the conversation and want to learn more, follow us on Twitter at the Dirt FM and visit WNCU.org for more information about the show. Stay tuned. Welcome back to The Dirt. We are talking about the state of the environment, a report issued by the North Carolina Conservation Network that tracks and analyzes a variety of measures across the state to look at how we're doing and how our natural systems are doing. I'm speaking with Grady McCauley, Policy Director at North Carolina Conservation Network. We know, Grady, after all of these storms that people are at risk uh, in living in the floodplains, living in certain coastal areas, certain areas in the mountains and the urban wildlands interface uh, where people are living amongst natural vegetation. So I think obviously where people live matters a great deal. You looked at some of the trends and patterns related to where people are moving and where people are living uh, over the past 10 years or so. What is the report say about that. Right. So we know North Carolina is growing really rapidly. We've got a strong economy and it's a lovely place to live. So lots of households are moving here. One of the things that we did in the report, one of the indicators we were interested in is where is the growth happening? So we looked at households moving into the state uh, or moving around within the state since 2010, since the 2010 census. And we used Census Bureau data that is collected every year um, to see where a net change in households has happened uh, by census tract. What we found was really surprising. What we found was that uh, over half of the net increase in households coming into places in the state are going into just 5% of the census tracts. And when you map out where those are, some of those neighborhoods are in downtown Raleigh and downtown Charlotte um, as as buildings, apartment buildings have been built and, and made room for households there. But by far, the majority of them are not in the downtowns. They're in outer suburbs and exurbs. Uh, and if you plot them on a map, you see them around Raleigh, around Concord, around Charlotte, um, and also out from Fayetteville, from Wilmington, from Jacksonville, from Asheville. And you did, what, you did plot them on a map, in fact. And that's if right. people go to <laughs> North Carolina <laughs> Conservation Network.org and uh, look up the report, you can see a, a beautiful map that uh, has been put together that that shows exactly where those tracks are, right? And part right, and part of why we care about that is that it's more expensive for local government to serve development that's far flung. Uh, it's also connected to public health. People who live out distant from urban cores where there are jobs have to commute further. That's associated with bad public health outcomes. Uh, it also traps teenagers who can't drive or who are driving but just learning and don't drive very well, or seniors who can't drive. Um, it's estimated that the average American lives for eight years beyond the time that they shouldn't be driving. Uh, and being isolated in your home is bad for mental and physical health. Um, so there are public health consequences of having this sprawling development. There are bad consequences for water quality in the streams, which you see in the stream health data. And one of the pieces that really worried us is these areas are hard to serve by transit because they're not very dense. And that means most of these new households moving in are going to be relying on their cars generating greenhouse gas emissions. And at this point, transportation is already the largest sector source of greenhouse gas emissions for North Carolina. So we don't want to see that get bigger, but that's exactly what these development patterns are driving. Right. And I know for listeners in the Durham area and the Triangle, we've just seen the struggle to get light rail uh, done here and it has failed. So 
people are stuck in their cars uh, for this for for the foreseeable future. Uh, I want to turn now to Kim Hunter, who is in studio with us, a senior attorney with the Southern Environmental Law Center. Welcome. Good morning. Thanks for having me. So my question to you is, Grady just laid out a lot of really bad reasons for people to live in the exurbs and move away from city centers and, you know, give themselves long commutes and all of these bad health outcomes. Why are people doing it? Are there certain policies encouraging this development? Like what is happening here? Yeah, well, um, I think often the land is, is cheaper in those communities. There's still um, a segment of our society, although it's, it's getting less and less, that is interested in that single-family house and that dream of, of the big backyard. Um, there's a lot of very cheaper properties going up in those types of neighborhoods. Um, but really, the one of the biggest drivers is that we are creating this level of access by building new highways all the time or widening highways ways or building bypasses so that people can live pretty conveniently in these um, more affordable areas and then commute into cities to, to, to get to work. And um, the way that we think about transportation policy in the state is to serve that need or that perceived need rather than thinking about um, how can we create communities a little differently to where people can actually live close to where they live, where they work, where they play, um, so that people can um, not even have to choose between a car or a, a light rail uh, because they're really not having to go far at all. I know uh, for folks, again, in Raleigh, this is a conversation that's happening in municipalities across America, particularly North Carolina, in Raleigh, in Durham, in Charlotte. There are vigorous debates going on about housing and housing density and, and what kinds of housing should be allowed where and, and what traditional housing looks like and, and that kind of thing. But from a transportation side of things, at the state level, the Department of Transportation, when they're approving a new highway project, do they do they take any of this into consideration? What are they taking into consideration? Do they consider some of the things that Grady was laying out earlier in terms of the health impacts of long commutes, the emissions impacts of long commutes. What's going on there? Unfortunately, none of that is really being considered. And in fact, we're still building um, on a sort of map of highways that were set out in the 1970s. And back then we were thinking about, okay, every big city should have a big urban loop around it. Every small town should be bypassed. Uh, the main aim of, of everyone in their life is to get to work without stopping at a single stoplight, without having to be stuck in traffic. And that is sort of the mentality rather than um, coupling the idea of land use and transportation together. The two are, are, are really completely divorced. And I think that's the biggest problem that we're seeing. Now, to do so takes a lot of work because it's sort of different entities that have to think about these things. The Department of Transportation doesn't naturally have a role in, in land use. That's more the, the role of local municipalities. Um, but there are policies that, that could be put in place to better connect those two. And, and a big one would be first to just recognize that they're connected 
connected. Um, I think we think about this a little differently of, well, you know, this, this highway's been on, on the books for a long time, so this community must want it, so we better get it built, and then the land use springs from that, rather than saying, hey, look, it's, it's 2019, the climate is changing, uh, people's preferences are changing, teenagers are, are buying cars later, learning to drive later. Um, I, I was thinking when I, when I got here today, um, you know, if the light rail was in place, there would have been a stop right here. Right, right here um, at NC Central, and I could have hopped back on the train back to my office, and in the meantime, I could have could have been doing work um, rather than you know the 30-minute drive I'm going to have and stop and go traffic on 15501. So you've got a lot of um, changing preferences that really haven't been taken into account, and so what what I would really like to see is a little bit of a timeout, especially on some of these bigger projects that we have on the books in North Carolina, and really rethink, okay, the state is growing, how do we want it to grow, and how can we do that in a way that is sustainable, that is healthy? Yeah, again, it, it kind of goes back to this idea that we've got so much information, and the holdup seems to be, the problem seems to be getting decision makers and policymakers to integrate that information into the decisions that they're making, at least under the assumption that they want these things to benefit people and the environment, these kinds of projects. What I know we see uh, historically with a lot of transportation projects, a lot of environmental justice concerns. I know that there are a lot of concerns uh, with stream degradation, wildlife uh, destruction, and other things. Are there particular projects that are uh, occurring now or are about to occur that have some of these kinds of implications that we should be learning about? Sure. Well, I think, you know, the big one that we're spending a lot of time focusing on right now is the completion or the proposed completion of the 540 loop south of Raleigh, which would be a uh, $2.2 billion highway. That's billion. Um, wow. That is the most expensive um, transportation project ever to be in, in North Carolina. And it's one of those projects that uh, has just been on the books for a long time. And initially, one of the stated purposes was literally to complete the loop. Like, we need a circle, <laughs> which is not um, really a, a great policy policy choice. But um, this project has just so many of um, those bad implications that Grady mentioned, starting with it's really going to encourage a lot more of that ex-urban development and development in areas that are going to have to be be served by by cars primarily so um, you know even when you talk to DOT about what is the need for this there they, they will say things like well so people in Johnston County can commute to RTP for work and you know you've really got to think with with climate change and with the air pollution and um, you know, the increase in childhood asthma and everything else that comes from just straight up simple air pollution from cars, uh, along with, with all the other impacts, is that really a lifestyle that we should be encouraging? And the Southern Environmental Law Center actually did a study, right, that, that looked at alternatives to that that could, pr for the people who are already there, could solve their problems. That's exactly right. I mean, every time we look at one of these big highway expansions, we always will we'll talk with transportation experts and look at alternatives. And there are always things you can do, and for a lot less money. And that um, includes, you know, better connecting up some of the local street networks. Um, sometimes it's just as simple as you've got too many driveways coming out onto one big 
main street. So, you know, to get from your Home Depot to um, the Harris Tita, you've got to get onto this main road, and maybe you can better connect up some of those those little streets. Um, there are existing um, highways that can have their intersections improved or turn lanes added that can really help with, with flow. Um, but then, of course, we also just really want to encourage more um, public transit and an expansion of public transit into these these types of areas. And when you look at smaller scale solutions like that, it's not only much less expensive for the taxpayers, but it can be done incrementally in a way that then you can work with the local communities to grow in a really sustainable way rather than come in with a sort of blunt sledgehammer of this $2.2 billion loop road, which is going to change everything all at one time in a way that's completely uh, irreversible. You know, I'm going to throw a little curveball at both of you for a second because a lot of a lot of uh, a lot of times I hear these transportation arguments, and it currently uh, when we had the the light rail debate, I heard this a lot as well. The idea that driverless cars are going to be the saviors of our transportation problems—that we don't need to build rail infrastructure or some of this other mass transit infrastructure because once everyone has a driverless car, everything's just going to operate perfectly smoothly, the stress from commutes will be less, there won't be as many accidents. We know that motor vehicle accident deaths are one of the top three causes of death in North Carolina. Is there merit to that argument? Are there downsides to that argument? Is it realistic? To the extent that either of you even I mean, know or have an opinion. I just find this argument bizarre, frankly, and we, we do hear it a lot, but a driverless car is a car on the road. So, you know, and there's some good little um, cartoons about this. But, you know, 50,000 cars looks the same as 50,000 driverless cars. And in fact, when you really think about it, you're probably going to need maybe even more cars because the way that I understand these cars operating is, you know, they're dropping you at work and then they're running back to a little little parking lot somewhere, um, which is creating, you're going to have to create this mass amount of um, impervious surfaces for all these cars to go hang out during the day, during the night. I'm not sure what they're going to be doing. Um, in terms of safety, I think there are some improvements there, but I, I you know, I've certainly seen a lot of studies showing that they, um, you know, don't always recognize pedestrians super well and that there might even be a uh, racial issue in there where um, they are recognizing white people more than they are recognizing African-American folks. So I think we've got a very long way to go on the technology, but in terms of this issue of um, growth patterns and uh, people's lifestyles, I mean, sure, you don't have to drive the car. That might be less stressful, but you're still sitting in it, wasting time for a lot of your day. You're not getting out and doing physical exercise. Um, so I, I, I don't think there's really a health aspect there that's very helpful. Um, so it's it's a strange one. You know, the other, <clears throat> I'll say the other thing, I, I hear people talk about electric vehicles, maybe more than automated vehicles. And Governor, say, Governor Cooper's trying to promote zero emission electric vehicles in the state. And, right? and it's good to see those increase in the market. I think it is important to understand that if we were to flip a switch and give everybody in the state an electric vehicle overnight rather than an internal combustion engine, we would still, um, that would only be as clean as the electric grid that's charging them. And right now that electric grid is, um, is 91% fossil fuels. So... It's really important that we deal, from a climate perspective, really important that we deal with this question of how we grow spatially, not just give everybody either automated vehicles or electric vehicles. The other thing I think it's worth noting is 
often when discussions of land use patterns come up, you'll hear fo- some folks say, but we shouldn't have government intervening in this because we shouldn't be social engineering or deciding how people get to live. But one thing that's important to understand for any discussion of transportation is this is all artificial. We are pumping so much money into our transportation system, and it is all done by government action. It is not a market-driven decision of where, that, where those transportation infrastructure investments go. So we are making those decisions one way or another, and, and we think we ought to make them wisely. Are there particular implications, uh, downsides to, from an environmental perspective to the construction of toll roads? Quickly, we have about a minute. Yeah, I think there's a couple. I mean, there's obviously an environmental justice angle there of really you're building a, a road at massive taxpayer expense, and it's only the wealthy who get the, the benefit from it, and the, the um, lower income communities get all the environment, the negative environmental impacts. But I think um, from a climate perspective, you're also sort of subsidizing a highway that you otherwise wouldn't be able to build and a, a, a level and you, you sort of purposefully got to build a massive in, uh, infrastructure piece so that there won't be any con- con- congestion on there, which really isn't a very sustainable way of thinking about infrastructure. And so if you go on our existing toll highways, there's not many cars on them and that's by design. That's how it is supposed to be. And so um, you're, again, encouraging, encouraging that bad land use, um, those long commutes, and all of the negative environmental impacts that go along with that. We are speaking with Kim Hunter, Senior Attorney with the Southern Environmental Law Center, and Grady McCauley, Policy Director at North Carolina Conservation Network, all about a new report called the State of the Environment. This is The Dirt on WNCU-FM. We've got to go to a break. Stay tuned. Welcome back to The Dirt. I am your host, Brian Powell. We are talking today about the state of the environment, a report issued by the North Carolina Conservation Network that tracks and analyzes a variety of different measures and data across the state. I have with me in the studio Grady McCauley, Policy Director and Architect of the State of the Environment report. Thank you again for being here, Grady. We've spoken uh, at, at length about resiliency, storms, the health impacts of transportation patterns and development patterns, and we've talked about wildfires and kind of a lot of negative stuff. I'm wondering if there was any bright spot uh, for you when you were, there is, I'm, I'm, what are some of the bright spots in the state of the environment? Right, so there are a couple of bright spots. We looked at, I think I'd mentioned, we looked at land and water, energy and waste management, um, transportation infrastructure. We looked at uh, how individual public health and education is doing, the strength of our communities and our economy. And right now, our communities are pretty strong. We actually found that um, 83% of North Carolinians feel that they are either strongly or somewhat connected to their communities, which is pretty good. And our economy is pretty strong right now. The trends were not nearly as positive. They're mixed, but um, overall negative for public health. So I want to talk about children's health uh, in particular in this segment. What in the in the report, it said some good things about the health of children in North Carolina in terms of health coverage, correct? Insurance coverage. That's right. In um, Insurance coverage in the data that we were looking at, which comes up through 2017, 
was going up, but but that's actually something that we're going to want to keep a close eye on because that's a trend that may reverse. And health insurance coverage, having health insurance coverage for children is really important. I want to turn now to Whitney Tucker, Research Director with NC Child. Thank you for being here, Whitney. Good afternoon. Thank you for having me. So to Grady's point, what I know that y'all have looked at insurance coverage uh, as something that you do I think on an annual basis, what what does that landscape look like from where you're sitting? Sure. So um, the percentage of children with health insurance coverage has gone down, as Grady mentioned, um, over the past 10 years or so, really since the passage of the Affordable Care Act, when it was really mandated for um, a much larger, larger swath of children. But um, some recent estimates are indicating that that trend is actually stalled and is reversing in some states. So we're seeing that we got rates of children's health insurance coverage down to, you know, or up to 95, 96, 97% um, in some areas of the state. And now we're seeing it, it slide backward again. Well, that's not good. And I'm sure that that will be reflected uh, in the next state of the environment uh, when, when Grady does this another time. I want to talk about some of the other health impacts that children are experiencing in North Carolina. We know I I have referenced that motor vehicle deaths are one of the top three uh, causes of death in North Carolina and uh, for adults uh, as well. And heart disease and cancer, I think, Grady, are the two other ones. And and there's an environmental tie to all three of those. Yeah, I should say that's that's in some ways a tricky statistic. What what that statistic is is years of potential life lost. And it's a we think it's a pretty illuminating statistic, which is why we chose it as an indicator it's different from the overall death rate. So it's not the overall mortality rate of what people are dying from. It actually says when someone dies, how many years short of 75 years old are they? And you add that up for the different causes of death. And one of the things that that tells you, because it weights younger deaths more heavily, it gives you a sense of if you look at, for example, racial and ethnic groups, are, are members of certain racial and ethnic groups dying at, on average, a younger age, which we found in North Carolina, black and Native American residents are dying at, at, at on average, a significantly younger age than white residents, for example. And so the difference in years of potential life lost is larger. In terms of what people die from, when you're looking at that, so it's kind of weighted for the age of the people who are dying, we found that Cancer is first, heart disease second, and motor vehicle accidents third. And that signals that particularly among younger residents, uh, motor vehicle accidents are are a real source of loss. And it also could signal that exposure at a young age to toxic chemicals or to uh, air pollution over the course of a long time could potentially contribute to some of those factors. Whitney, can you tell me a little bit more about what specifically the children in North Carolina are facing in terms of health challenges? Sure. So um, I want to start by saying that one of the biggest health challenges that, that faces all children, but specifically black children, Hispanic and Latino children, and Native American children is poverty, right? Because so many of these other factors are linked to their family's economic status, whether they're likely to live in a high poverty neighborhood, has a lot to do with um, their likelihood of coming into contact with a lot of dangerous chemicals, um, of living in an area with high violence, um, an area with low um, nutritious food access, and all of those things then play out in other health statistics. So when we talk about um, kids who are living in poor or low-income homes, it's usually what we report at NC Child because 
so many scholars have said that the, the poverty rate, which is 100% of the federal poverty level, is just really insufficient to tell you about what a family really needs. For a family of four, that's about $25,000. But um, when we talk about poor or low-income homes, that's twice that amount, so about $50,000 for a family of four people. And um, that percentage overall in the state is about 43% of kids, but that's only 29% of non-Hispanic white children. Um, 69% of Hispanic or Latino children are living in poor or low-income homes. 60% of black children are living in poor or low-income homes. Um, and then 34% of Asian Pacific Islander kids are. So we're seeing this, this huge disparity in just from the start what um, things kids are able to access and what sort of um, potential dangers they're going to come in contact with. And then that plays out over a number of other indicators. So uh, children who have an asthma diagnosis, uh, we have a higher percentage for um, black children and Hispanic children than um, white children in the state. Black children is about 15%. Um, Hispanic Latino is about 14. White children down to um, 13. But um, then when we go to things like infant mortality, where from the start you're learning a lot about what sort of health access a mom might have had, um, then we see huge disparities by race. Um, for white children, the rate of infants who die before their first birthday is five per every 1,000 births. For black children, it's 13. Right? Wow. So um, it's a huge gap in, um, in access to care is leading to a lot of different health outcomes over the long run that then at the root really has to do with access to capital. Right? And so all of these things are kind of um, cyclical. We see higher rates of kindergarten students with untreated tooth decay. Um, for African-American, Native American, um, Hispanic and Latino kids, and for white kids, um, fewer um, immunizations that are on time. Um, about 70% of children 19 to 35 months have appropriate immunizations, um, white children do. But then we see um, about 80% uh, of black kids are not receiving those compared to that 70%. And so it's just... I mean, there's a number of different factors that go into all these, right? But um, over time, all of the health risks that come along with being black, being Latino, being Native American in North Carolina because of the sort of access that you have to different opportunities is leading to worse health outcomes that, you know, is then making a direct tie back to those um, life expectancy figures that Grady was already talking about. And it makes a lot of sense what we see as adults um, based on what sort of opportunities we present to kids when they're only children. Right. And I think one of the big kind of focal points for the State of the Environment report, as I'm reading it, has been this connectivity, uh, the fact that all of these, and this is the reason, I think, Grady, that you didn't just examine clean water and how many trees there are in North Carolina. You looked at economic factors. You looked at racial disparities in education, in birth weight, in all of these things uh, across the board to see because they're all connected. Correct. Right. That's right. Yeah. And, and I will say one of the one of the pieces that we were looking at in particular is um, disparate exposures to um, environmental public health threats. So, for example, uh, the disparate exposures to um, to air toxic respiratory hazards, uh, air toxic pollutants. Um, there is a correlation between, on the one hand, where those air toxic exposures are and, on the other, neighborhoods that have a higher percentage of low-income residents or communities of color, residents of color. Um, we know from a study, national study in 2014, that 
looking at toxics release inventory, so releases of toxics to air, to water, to land, that when you look at that nationally, low-income communities are slightly more likely than average to be exposed to higher levels of those toxic releases. Communities of color are significantly more likely to be exposed to those releases. And, and I think part of that is, again, as Whitney was saying, access to capital, correct? Because, you know, you and, and possibly even where people are living, as we were talking about in other segments as well, um, that plays into the power you have to prevent a polluting industry from coming into your community uh, and, and things like that, which will impact your children. I, I want to ask, uh, Whitney, are there... What, what what is the what does the mental health landscape look like with regard to to children in North Carolina? Um, you know, it's it's really troubling right now. So um, this year's child health report card, we actually highlighted the um, suicide rate for youth in the state because we are seeing such a, a devastating trend. Suicide is now the second leading cause of death for children ages ten to seventeen, and the youth suicide rate nearly doubled from two thousand eight to twenty seventeen. And um, even within that, you know, really sobering statistic, we're seeing um, really significant racial disparities. So um, overall, the percentage of high school students who attempted suicide in 2017 is about 8.2%. But for um, white students, that was only about 5%. And for black students, it was 11%. And then when you look back to access to care, um, among adolescents who are 12 to 17, so like in that you know high school range, um, who have had a major depressive episode in the last um, year, those who received treatment for depression, um, about 48% of white students in that age range did, but only 35% of black students. So we're seeing a higher rate of suicide attempts. Um, for kids of color, we're seeing um, a lower treatment rate for depression um, for kids who have had a depressive episode, which a lot of studies have shown is linked to suicidal ideation, even though it is not the only thing that, you know, might lead a child to suicide. But I mean, overall, that is contributing to this this really devastating trend. Um, And also, I mean, there are other factors outside of um, just race as well. So like we know that LGBTQ youth are much more likely to, um, to die by suicide in our state now as well. Like, in, 27, in 2017, 16% of high school students overall reported that they had seriously considered suicide. And this included 12% of heterosexual students, but 43% of gay, lesbian, or bisexual students. Wow, that's staggering. And I'm guessing uh, that these are probably, if anything, low numbers, uh, given the reliance on self-reporting. Absolutely. So, I mean it's pretty much a certainty that the problem is even, you know, more substantial than we're able to gather data on. And um, if we don't move fast, we're just going to continue to see this trend, um, this really high uptick in child suicides. And um, we have to work now to stop it. And there are a few different ways you can go about that. But I mean, um, I think a large part of it is really just changing the narrative and letting people know that this is a problem. That the mental health landscape for children um, is really just discussed a lot less than that for adults. So, so Whitney, I'm curious to ask, obviously we want to close the disparities in environmental exposures and reduce environmental exposures for, for everybody, but you've mentioned a few different times the importance of access to health care, and I wondered if there are solutions 
not just like preventing the exposure in the first place, but recognizing that some number of people are going to be exposed. What are what are the best policy solutions to address that? Certainly. So, I mean, the first thing is increasing the affordability of healthcare insurance. I mean, I think that um, right now Medicaid expansion is getting a lot of you know um, airtime on the news and within the legislature. But I mean, it's with good reason. It's because a lot of states have seen that when you increase the affordability of health insurance, either by, you know, expanding Medicaid under the Affordable Care Act or through some other means, you know, um, policy-wise, anything that makes health care more affordable for families, particularly for parents, um, studies have shown that when parents are insured that their children are more likely to, insure, to be insured. And then when you have health insurance, you are more likely to receive preventive care. You're more likely to be able to catch any sort of um, you know, negative effect of an exposure earlier. Um, before it becomes something life-threatening, you're uh, more able to, to get into the swing of healthy life habits, um, particularly for women of childbearing age. This could have a big impact on things like infant mortality and low birth weight, um, you know, further down the road. So that is one big change that um, really does a lot to, to help families. But then also on, you know, a larger outside of a single family um, sort of level, there are a lot of policy strategies that we could put in place to really affect the the way that income and race and segregation really track together. So um, neighborhood segregation has a lot to do with the opportunities and exposures that you'll have based on you know, your race and your income, which um, in our area of the country often track together due to historical policy choices. And um, the more that we do to increase access for folks from lower income neighborhoods, which are more likely to be communities of color, to areas that are higher income, that have um, better opportunities in terms of economic mobility um, and also school quality, the more likely we are to raise social capital and that allows people to, to move out of those places more easily. And then it um, disrupts these, these racialized um, and income segregated trends over time. What, what would be some specific ways that people could increase that access? Sure. So um, the first is ending discriminatory practices that promote segregation. So um, pr segregation either by income or by race. So we still have um, codes in some of the laws for our, our zoning districts that are um, racially segregated. I mean, it's you know, not legal, and I think most people wouldn't even know now if they are living in a home that's like that. But um, when you go through a... Um, high-income neighborhood, most of those homes are um, owned by white families, and that is because, historically, um, and there was a clause in those um, contracts that required that. And I think that the more we do to increase affordable housing in um, districts that were not traditionally made for folks who were not high-income or, you know, white, because in the past that was high-income, um, the better we, off we are. Um, secondly, investing in under-resourced schools. So research has shown that areas that invest in more um, higher quality teachers and smaller student-teacher ratios in public schools in particular reap a lot of benefits in student economic mobility, which then translates to health benefits because their families are able to get out of more dangerous areas and to invest in um, preventive health care. So policy changes that um, allow students equal access to high quality education regardless of their income have a lot of potential to move generations of children you know, from um, these dangerous environments to areas of greater opportunity. And then last, um, just anything that ensures that residents in an under-resourced neighborhood 
um, aren't limited exclusively to the opportunities that are available in their area. So that's, you know, physically, but also, you know, metaphorically. So, you know, transportation investments that make it easier for folks who um, might live in a low-income neighborhood to um, take a job in a higher-income place where they are more likely to be um, hiring folks with higher salaries, right? Mm -hmm. That sort of thing um, translates to really big gains for kids and their families in terms of economic mobility and in terms of environmental health. We are listening to Whitney Tucker, Research Director with NC Child, and Grady McCauley, Policy Director at the North Carolina Conservation Network. We are out of time today. Thank you both for being here. This is The Dirt on WNCU-FM, and we are talking about the State of the Environment, a new report from the North Carolina Conservation Network. Find out more information at The Dirt on Twitter, at The Dirt FM, or at ncconservationnetwork.org or wncu.org. Until next time, be good. Y'all.